0: Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Giacomo.
1: And I'm Danny.
0: And this is our 39th episode.
1: Well, we just got back from Philadelphia and it was really, really awesome. We were working at the Philadelphia Fit Expo at the Vegan Bodybuilding Booth, so Robert Cheek's booth. And he, yeah, he invited us out there because he had a booth space there, and it's Actually, a really big deal because this is only the second time that a vegan bodybuilding or vegan athlete booth has been representing at a mainstream fitness expo. The first one was the LA Fit Expo a month ago or so.
0: Yeah, I believe so. And uh, I really didn't know what to expect because, I mean, you know, I really didn't know what to expect because, I mean, you know, you see these things in the digital world and on social media and it only paints one picture and it's usually the most positive aspects of any kind of like thing that's going on but in person you know it can always be a different story and honestly going to a mainstream fitness expo for the first time i expected a lot of pushback you know i mean we've been doing this for around 10 years or so give or take and even i mean mainly we've been going to vegan specific expos, animal right events and stuff like that and you know friends and family who are already vegan would bring their, you know, their friends and family who were not and you know we'd get we'd get like the occasional hater and sometimes more often than not even at vegan specific events and at a mainstream expo where the vast overwhelming majority of attendees um probably were not even ever exposed to veganism um came to our booth and came to our talks, I expect this pushback, and there was was none.
1: Yeah, it was really great. I'm I'm not sure exactly how many attendees there were. I know that it was Philadelphia's first ever fit expo, so I think it was smaller than the other fit expos, but still a very decent-sized expo with lots of fitness celebrities, and the vast majority of people were not even remotely veg-curious, so I was kind of waiting to be trolled all day long, and it really didn't happen. Uh, we had a lot of talks. So we, when I say we, the people representing at Vegan Bodybuilding's booth were Robert Cheek, myself and Giacomo, Natalie Matthews, Fit Vegan Chef, uh, Fraser Bailey, Evolving Alpha, Lillian Aguila, Vanessa Espinoza, who co-wrote um, with Robert on the latest plant-based muscle book, and then also Carrie Kidd, who I only knew online. Um, and he was actually representing at the True Supplements booth, but he kept coming over uh, many, many times. He's been vegan since birth, and he's like a, a mammothly strong guy. So, yeah, it was uh, it was just very cool to have so many people just ask genuine, open questions about going vegan in the mainstream movement. And I really think that that is the pulse of the mainstream fitness movement right now. Um, let's see, Mike Rashid was there and he just went vegan recently for health reasons. Dana Lynn Bailey and Rob Bailey were there. Rob Bailey is vegan and DLB has given up all kinds of meat and dairy. I believe all that she's eating now is fish. Uh, Massiarius was there. She's got two and a half million followers on Instagram and she came over to our booth and was talking to us about, you know, how to transition to veganism and how to do it right. And it was just like, kind of jaw-dropping how how different it is from, you know, 10 years ago when we literally would get made fun of pretty much everywhere we went. Like, it would be like, veganism, that's an oxymoron, or vegan bodybuilding, that's an oxymoron. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And it just goes to show you that even if something seems like it's impossible, like, don't don't give up. Don't let the naysayers make you feel bad about what it is you're doing. There's a a quote, and I don't know where it comes from, somebody I'm sure can tell me, but it's basically like, first they'll laugh at you, and then they'll ask you how you did it, and that's basically exactly what I've seen come to fruition over the last 10 years.
0: So with that being said, I feel like there's no reason for us to, to not continue to do this, And we'll be continuing to hit the Fit Expos all over the place. The next one is going to be in Chicago sometime in the beginning of June. So be on the lookout for that because we'll be there.
1: With that said, we want to talk about emotional eating. (laughs) That's what we're going to be talking about today. This actually started on my Instagram page when I put out a poll because I always want to know what people are struggling with and what they're wanting to get better at and i thought that it was going to be like help me calculate my macros or i'm i really suck at meal prepping and there was a little bit of that but i would say probably 40 to 50% of the hundreds of direct messages that i got on this topic were about people struggling with emotional eating or binge eating or overeating so since then i've been putting out all kinds of content specifically about emotional eating so I have an Instagram series that's only about halfway done. Um, I have been putting out videos on YouTube, which if anybody knows me, YouTube scares the ever-loving crap out of me. But I figured YouTube would give me a chance to maybe reach a few different people and also to go a little bit deeper into these topics by myself without having to dedicate multiple podcasts to it. So... If you're interested in checking out those videos where we dive into these topics very, or I dive into these topics very specifically, the channel is Vegan Proteins. And there's also some recipe videos up there, and I'm really hoping to be adding more content to that regularly, but I'm still really nervous about it. So any support I could get would be super helpful.
0: So... You know, it was really refreshing for me to see so many people reaching out to Danny to want to talk a little bit more about their emotional struggles and just the psychology uh, and behavior of eating as opposed to what to eat and what not to eat. You know, the thing of it is is that you don't see it out there in the public because it's not like one of those things where the community just all gets together and says, hey, let's talk about like the way that we think about food. But everyone as individuals reached out and came out in droves and messages privately, which just goes to show when it comes to psychology, it can be very, very easy to just get caught up in your head and think you're alone. And it can be hard to connect with others and reach out. So our goal with this emotional eating series, or I guess moreover Danny's goal with the emotional eating series, was to really break down and deconstruct this stuff and really get down to the core of it and talk about it because let's face it, knowing what to eat and knowing what not to eat is you know it can get you somewhere and it can get you so far but inside if that problem is never tackled if our relationship with food is never nurtured or not nurtured enough it's just going to be an ongoing struggle and you know you can wind up yo-yo dieting or developing all sorts of problems or you can look great but on the inside you can be suffering
1: yeah i also think that there's a stigma and a shame within the fitness community that if you know what to do and like you're strong and fit and you know how to eat, that that means that you're actually able to do it. And that is really, really untrue just because you know what macros to eat. You know how to break down your nutritional timing, you know, um, you know, Even if you have all of this knowledge about how to eat, that doesn't mean that you have a good relationship with food by any stretch of the imagination. And a lot of times when we're in the throes of like an emotional eating or binge eating pattern, you can literally feel like you're sinking in quicksand and you have no idea how to even begin to stop it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think another issue when it comes to deconstructing these things is that I think by nature, humans tend to seek pleasure and avoid pain, and all of, these, all of this emotional baggage that we accumulate over the years really adds up, and uh, it's not exactly fun to, to tackle that and to really delve into that pain. I mean, the instant gratification usually lies in, oh, I'm going to change my body, and then I'm going to feel good, and everything's just going to change, and I'm going to feel great, and I mean, yeah, that works for a little bit. But the long-term gratification is something that's usually harder to work on. It's far less rewarding. It doesn't trigger like a rewarding response. And when we work through it, it actually feels really, really bad because we're, you know, we're picking ourselves apart from the inside and trying to like figure out the pieces of the puzzle and make ourselves feel better for the future. But honestly, that's, to me, that is the ultimate goal and something we should be working towards at our own pace and time.
1: So we're not naive enough to think that we can do some Instagram posts and YouTube videos and everybody's going to no longer emotionally eat. This is an incredibly dense topic um, with lots of twists and turns that are going to be unique to each individual and we totally acknowledge that and if you think that you need more help than these podcasts and videos can offer you, I think you should reach out and get that help. Um, whether that's talking to a doctor or a therapist, or if you don't have access to those, you can even use betterhelp.com, which is online therapy. And I do have a link uh, specifically for that, that I'll share in the show notes here. But you know, there, there is a limit to what we can help people with. And I think that we can help people with their sort of disordered eating, but not necessarily an eating disorder. And when we asked uh, the Muscles by Brussels community, hey, what do you specifically want to hear about this topic? Somebody said, I want to know when you need, how do I know if I need more help than this? And I think it's important to remember that eating disorders and disordered eating really runs on a spectrum. It's not like one day you wake up and you just have an eating disorder. Usually eating disorders are built up over long, long times of little habits of little things about your eating that are just not quite healthy. And then something happens and it can kind of morph into an eating disorder without you even noticing. But very rarely do you go from a healthy relationship with food to a full-blown eating disorder overnight. There are signs. And a lot of those signs are things that we've been talking about in the YouTube video, in the Instagram series. And you know, if they're happening, they are red flags and you need to pay attention to them because while they may not require professional care right now, if you don't try to nip them in the bud now, they may very well require professional care down the line. And I find that the more these habits and limiting beliefs and disordered thoughts kind of build up, the harder it is to sort of untangle it at the end and get back to a healthy place. So If anything we're about to talk about is interfering with your life or your relationships in any way, I think you should reach out and get professional help.
0: And I think one thing I just want to add to the whole seeking professional help idea is that you don't have to be in the throes of a full-blown eating disorder and you don't have to even be to the point where you can't take care of yourself on a basic level to be able to look for help. Therapy... And seeking professional help is a privilege, and it's something that I think all of us can benefit from, whether we have, you know, slightly disordered eating habits or a full-blown eating disorder. It doesn't matter. I don't think that there's any shame in seeking help, no matter where you are, and I think it can only benefit you to hit, to to grow from that angle too, uh, with working with professional. And I think speaking fra- from from uh, A man's perspective, I think in general, when it comes to masculinity, it's always like, hey, you know, you just got to be okay and you got to be emotionally disconnected and you don't need help. You're a tough guy, right? And there are just so many men out there that are suffering and that are hurting inside. And I don't mean to get like all sappy and sensitive, but the truth of the matter is we're all human, gender aside, like we can all use some help. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to better yourself.
1: Yeah, I think just therapy can be just a really important form of self-care regardless of where you are mentally, and it's like a preventative measure. It's kind of like taking vitamins for your brain. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, Giacomo, because everybody has heard my voice on this for quite a while now, um, but nobody's really heard you talk about it. If you had to name some of the underlying causes of emotional eating that you've witnessed as a coach... What would you say those things are?
0: I think a lot of the underlying causes of emotional eating come down to habits. You know, it comes down to lifestyle. And, you know, I I don't know that we necessarily look at food and plan on breaking down how we eat and how to enjoy eating. I think we look at food sometimes too much in isolation, like, hey, I'm going to eat like this, and I'm going to change my body. And if I'm not, I'm not changing my body. And then we become, you know, it's easy to, to get into this like vicious cycle of guilt where we just punish ourselves because we're not able to stick to something as opposed to not necessarily realizing that, you know, we're not paying attention to how we're eating, you know, and how we can incorporate a healthy relationship with food into our life.
1: I mean, I think, I think what you're saying is true. I think a lot of people that emotionally eat or overeat or binge eat, which I'm going to lump all of those together as emotional eating. Um, just because a lot of times when people binge, they're saying I emotionally eat, um, or if they overeat, they're saying I emotionally eat. And a lot of times when people say I'm emotionally eating, what they mean is that they're binging. So I'm kind of, kind of lump those all together for now. um, But I think you're right. I think a lot of people think they emotionally eat because of some deep-rooted, broken psychology, Um, which which may be true. There may be some deep-rooted psychological issues going on, and I'm certainly not suggesting that there never is. But I think that a lot of the time, the vast majority of overeating or binge-eating incidents can be traced back to something... Uh, much more physiological, and that's actually a good thing. So a lot of people might think like, "Oh, she's saying that I don't have an actual emotional problem at all." Uh, you don't want to have an emotional problem with food, really, because that is a lot harder to tackle, in my opinion. That requires a lot of, of work in therapy to really get to the root of those problems and those limiting beliefs. And and I, I do hope to touch on that at the end of this series at some point. But what I find is that most binge eating episodes, most episodes of overeating or emotionally eating come down to something that is much more physiological, which means we can fix it. Like those are things that we can tackle on our own, usually... Um, although you don't have to tackle it on your own. But, you know, you could, if you wanted to, start to work on these things without needing the help of a medical professional necessarily. So it's actually a good thing.
0: So, I mean, I I think what we can do over here right now is sort of, I mean, there are pretty much an innumerable amount of examples, and each individual is going to have a combination of different things, I think, that are going to, lend themselves to an unhealthy relationship with food or unhealthy eating habits and patterns. Um, but maybe if we just talk about some of the more um, more popular ones, I think that, you know, we can sort of help reframe the way that we think about food and ultimately um, have a better relationship with it, which will, of course, lead to better results. Gee, why don't we start with the simple thing over here? Why don't we start with just hydration? yeah so hydration is so underrated. I would say, oh jeez, at least half of the people that come to me to start working together um and to be coached are usually are usually dehydrated they're they're not getting enough water and they don't realize the importance of that, or moreover, they do realize the importance of it. they're just not doing anything about it, and they you know they can't see the forest for the trees. You know they're little, they're looking to make like these major changes instead of just looking at the small stuff that they can change um you know not realizing that that's ultimately what's going to make a real difference you know they're looking for like the extreme like some sort of like rapid transformation. but if you were to just focus on say you know maybe getting in the right amount of water, whether it's a gallon a day um half a gallon three quarters of a gallon a day, whatever it is that you need for your body, you know you're you're going to be thinking more clearly. More often than not, when you're hungry, you're really just thirsty, for example. So you're going to feel better and chances are, you know, your hunger signals are going to be more true and you'll be able to recognize them as opposed to thinking you're hungry when you're actually just thirsty. The next one I would say that's also super, super duper important and probably the most overlooked thing out of anything I could imagine when it comes to being healthier and being more fit is sleep. I think... We live in a culture where we are perpetually overworked, we're constantly looking to be overachievers and doing more and doing more and doing more, not realizing that if we took care of ourselves and we lived a healthier lifestyle, that we could be far more productive and efficient, you know, not just in life, but also with our health and wellness goals. And, you know, when I see people coming to me and they're telling me that they're getting six hours of sleep and it's crap and they've been doing it for a while, or, they're getting like they're laying down they're sleeping for 7 plus hours but it's poor quality sleep. I'm saying to myself, wow, like this to me, the hydration and the sleep are at the core of someone's health, not how much or how little they're eating and not how much they can stick to a diet. Sleep is so 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 crucial. You take someone who is not getting quality sleep and and banking in a good amount of hours into their sleep bank on a daily and weekly basis and you bring that person to me, and I will show you a person who is far more stressed than they need to be. They have far more cortisol in their system, which is going to be working against them in the gym, um, working against them with their eating habits, and just you know their overall feeling of well-being.
1: Yeah, and there's actually been studies that have shown that people that are in a sleep deficit, or if people have a, a, a night of Little or low quality sleep, on average, they overeat the following day by anywhere from 300 to 600 calories. And I've definitely witnessed this myself on nights where I don't get enough sleep. I am ravenously hungry the next day. And I know that I don't actually need that food, it's just that my body requires recovery. And there's a few ways that we can recover. One of them is food and one of them is sleep. So if it doesn't have enough of one, it's going to go for the other. And you know, 300 calories doesn't sound like that big of a deal. But if you're in a chronic sleep deficit and you're overeating by that much every single day, that could be anywhere from one to five extra pounds you put on in a month multiply that by a year, you know, you could see how people gain 15 pounds, you know, pretty easily every year without really even noticing it. A large part of it I find does have to do with sleep and people's poor sleep quality definitely coincides with incidents of binging in terms of my clients and their check-ins. Um, if somebody has a, a binging episode, we kind of trace it backwards. This is what I do. I I trace it backwards and I see what happened. And Giacomo's right that um, not getting enough sleep or having poor quality sleep definitely correlates with higher incidences of binge eating. So this is a really simple thing that a lot of people don't think of when they're struggling with overeating is like, look at your sleep. What are your sleep patterns like? We spend a third of our life, in theory, asleep or going to sleep or waking up from being asleep. And... How are you doing that? What does what, what your sleep quality look like? And that's a pretty simple non-food related thing that you can take a look at to help improve your um, eating habits. <clears throat> but I got to disagree with you, Giacomo. I think that way, way more than sleep and hydration, way, way more than that. Is people trying to stick to a steep caloric deficit to me, in my experience, that is far in a way like head and shoulders above every other reason that people overeat or binge eat is that they are trying to stay in a deficit. Maybe, maybe they don't even know they're in a deficit. Maybe they do know they're in a deficit and they're actively trying to lose body fat But regardless, I've said this before and I'll say it again. A diet that you can't stick to is not the diet for you. So if you're trying to lose some body fat and your caloric deficit is too steep for you to like feel pretty good while you're doing it, then it's too steep. And if you're in a deficit that's too steep and you're not used to or you're not comfortable with, Chances are very, very high, very, very high that you are going to binge and you are going to overeat. The number one cause of eating disorders, this is a true statement, the number one cause of eating disorders is dieting. Not everybody who diets will develop an eating disorder, but almost every single person that has developed an eating disorder has gone on a diet. The dieting can very quickly and easily feed right into eating disorder land. So a lot of times it is trying to stay lower calories than you probably should. That leads you to binge eating or overeating. And then what happens after you binge eat or you overeat? Well, then you feel guilty. Like you have no willpower. Like you just fucked up. So then you double down on this diet and you're like, tomorrow I start it and this time I'm really going to do it. Or you punish yourself by hopping on a treadmill and trying to burn off your binge, um, which of course just makes you hungrier later. So number one, number one, number one takeaway, if you are struggling with binge eating, look at your average daily calories. If it's, if you look at it and you're like, wow, that's low increase it, increase it. You can make fat loss progress on a caloric deficit of a hundred calories a day. That's a pound in a month. I would rather you lose a pound in a month with a teeny tiny caloric deficit of a hundred calories and maintain that over the course of a year. While well, a year later you lost 12 pounds and you didn't screw up your relationship with food and yourself and your body, um, and I I would prefer that a million times over than someone trying to stick to a 5, 6, 700 calorie deficit and doing really well six days a week and then binging once every single week. You know, one good binge, you can undo all of that hard work that you've put in. And it really, psychologically, that feeling of failure every single week, every single time you binge, every single time you overeat can take a real toll on your uh, self-confidence and on your self-worth so number one look at your calories if you need to bring them up bring them up and bring them up without shame absolutely there have been times i've dieted and i have really struggled to adhere and at the end of the day i just look at it and I say well i'm like not in a place right now to be in this deep of a deficit and we just bring calories up and everything goes a ton smoother and i feel a lot better And likewise, you know, you might not even be on a diet per se. You might just be really friggin' busy and end up going 8-10 hours without eating, without even deliberately doing it. I mean, this happens all the time, that people are just too busy, they forget to eat for long periods of time, then they're starving, and they eat a massive meal. Uh, Maybe it's not a binge, but maybe it's just more than they actually needed or required, or they have to eat till they're like uncomfortably full. So this is just calling a caloric deficit by a different name, but making sure that you're eating enough, but also spreading it out in a way that makes sense for you and your schedule is really important. So for a lot of people, um, this is kind of going off on a side tangent here, but this is why intermittent fasting doesn't work for everybody. Um, for some people, it works great and that's cool. I have nothing against intermittent fasting at all. But for some people, you know, going 16 hours without eating, if you're doing a 16 hour fast, 16 hours without eating um, can, for some people, make them so hungry by the time they eat that they literally binge in their feeding window, um, exceed the calories that they need to take in and basically are doing a restrict binge type of mini eating disorder cycle and calling it intermittent fasting. So you really, really, really need to be honest with yourself in terms of what's going on. And if, if what you're doing feels good physically and mentally, and if something feels off, then you should probably take a look at it and change it.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it's easy to, to be able to do something five or six days. And, you know, within those five or six days, you are in deficit. But if that one day you fly off the handle, or if like two to three times in the week you fly off the handle, even though the majority of your plan looks like you're in a deficit, if you take the weekly average of how you're eating, you're probably at maintenance or even in a surplus. And that can be a tough pill to swallow.
1: Yeah. Cause then you feel like, well, I'm dieting. Like I've, I've been dieting and for the <laughs> most part I've been sticking to it, but I'm not losing weight. And maybe you're even gaining weight. Um, But the thing is, is you can diet, like Jogmore just said, you could diet for six days a week and undo all that work on day seven with an accidental binge. Um, And then you just feel like, you feel like shit when you're trying so hard to do something and you're not getting the results that you want. But then also that seventh day, that little little episode of overeating um, often becomes very secretive. And very shameful because it's such a dramatic difference from how you are 90% of the time. You know, 90% of the time you're sticking to your diet, you're training, you're doing all this. And then you have this little window where you have like maybe a pretty ugly overeating episode. And you keep it to yourself and you don't tell anyone because you're ashamed. So if you're not telling anybody else, then you might be saying to people like, I'm doing everything right. I'm I'm sticking to everything, but nothing's happening. But in reality, that little secret overeating episode is undoing all of your progress. So you feel like crap because you're not making progress. You feel like crap because you're basically keeping this secret. And I would... I would say eating disorders literally are born in secret. So if you are struggling with overeating and binge eating, tell somebody, tell somebody it's very important. The more you keep it to yourself, the more likely you're going to, you know, this is going to develop into a full blown eating disorder. That's a lot harder to come back from. Um, and oftentimes we just end up doubling down on those six days a week, making the six days a week even more intense in terms of their dieting, which usually just leads to bigger or more intense binges on the weekend.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you just take that model of of how you're eating, you know, somewhat against your will. And if you were to take that food and to spread it out throughout the week, maybe like, you know. Maybe you might not think, maybe you th- would think that you're doing a self, yourself a disservice or that you're a failure. But in reality, all that you're doing is reframing the way that you're eating on a weekly basis. And you're doing it in a m- much more healthier and sustainable way. And you're good. and now you can sort of, you know, do the patchwork and fix the way that you're uh, viewing what's on your plate and how you're eating. And then you can start to make changes. And here's the the other thing, you know backpedaling a little bit and talking about the person who's constantly like dieting down so hard and suppressing calories And maybe even not necessarily having these binging episodes, but they're not seeing the results You know, you can get dieting has a shelf life and I don't care how skillful you are at it Dieting has a shelf life and if you go into a steep deficit Whether you go into it too fast or you go into it at the tail end of a diet like you can only do it for so long and once your metabolism becomes Suppressed, and your body meets you with where you're at, and it's resulted in homeostasis. You are there, and that's where you're going to live. And until you make a change, you're not going to see more change. And so, believe it or not, and I mean, this isn't for everybody, but there are a decent chunk, like more than 10 to 20 percent, we're looking at upwards of 30 to 50 percent of people who have been suppressing their metabolisms and dieting for too long over too long of a period of time. Once their calories get upped, they can actually lose body fat at maintenance and sometimes even at a surplus.
1: But I mean, you don't hear about people on a bulk binging. It almost, I mean, I'm not saying it never, ever happens. So if that's something that you're experiencing, please don't feel like there's something wrong with you because it's happening. But in general, people eating at maintenance or in a slight caloric surplus, once they've been doing it for a few weeks, they're usually not binge eating um, because they're, eating enough. And that that alone should tell you how much binge eating is a physiological response to a caloric deficit. Um, but I want to move on to something that Giacomo is actually pretty passionate about, and that is the environment in which you are eating your food. I think this plays a large role in terms of people accidentally. This is more of like an accidentally overeating, but I, anyway, I'll let Giacomo talk about it.
0: So yeah, so I'm actually quite fortunate because I had you know, there were some healthy eating habits ingrained in me um, without me even having to work for them. But, you know, as an adult, I recognize that these are are incredibly valuable tools to apply to one's environment. They're also things that are easy to forget once we get into our own little hamster wheel. But stuff as simple as, you know, eating with others and being present, you know, when it can be It can be a slippery slope when you're eating alone and when you're distracted, um, whether you're watching TV, whether you're uh, tapping and scrolling through on your phone, you know, whether whatever it is, you know, even when we're not in a dieting phase, it can be very easy to become so food focused that food becomes the focus. And, you know, we sort of move away from just enjoying eating socially, um, and even enjoying eating with ourselves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a very opposite household. We Giacomo asked me this a couple weeks ago. He said, what were dinners like at your family? And I said, we never ate dinner together. Literally never. I mean, other than like Thanksgiving and holidays like that, I have no, memories of my parents sitting down to eat dinner with us three kids sat at the table and ate and they sat in the living room and like watched tv um i mean just so many weird weird little screwed up eating habits that yeah i was raised with and then i worked in the restaurant industry for uh i don't know 12 years or something and you know you're working through traditional meal times when you work in a restaurant so Never had normal meal times. Um, when I was able to eat, it was always standing eating, like over a trash can. Uh, that sounds so horrible, but that's how you eat in the restaurant industry. You scarf down a bite here or there. So to this day, I still have really bizarre um, eating habits that I've worked really hard to improve upon, um, and it's been super helpful to me. I used to. I mean, it's it's not a I don't think it's a secret. I, st- I recorded a video about it. I haven't put it together yet because it's, it's kind of dark and heavy. But I definitely struggled with emotional eating and binge eating and eating disorders uh, for many, many years of my life. So I've, I have taken the time and I have done the hard work to relearn a lot of these habits. And what Giacomo is saying about you know your food environment is really true. If I'm not careful to this day, I can eat all of my meals just scrolling through my phone or sitting on my computer and working. And anytime I catch myself in a cycle of doing that regularly, I, I never really enjoy my food. I never really get satisfied from my food because I never gave it the attention while I was eating it. Um, and... When you're not getting satisfaction from your food, you are you tend to reach for more food to sort of fill that hole. So trying to sit down at the table and eat whenever I can. Um, trying to have dinner with Giacomo at least a few times a week where we're sitting at the table talking to each other is important. And we're very busy <laughs> and we eat on different schedules. So it's not always easy to line these things up. But... Just a few little things that I personally have done that have made a world of difference for me. And anytime I don't follow these rules, um, I always pay for it a little bit. Is to not eat out of a package, for one. I don't like to eat my food out of a package. I like to put it on a plate. I like to put it in a Tupperware or whatever. Um, But eating foods out of a package, like, like pretzels or even fruit. Um, I can sit down and eat a whole bag of grapes if I don't actually take them out and put them on a dish. Um, you know, it adds up very quickly and I don't know if there's any studies about this. I'll have to check it out. I know I'm doing a post about this specifically later in the week, but I know for me personally, you know, you ever go to the store and buy a bag of, of pretzels and it it looks like a single serving, right? (laughs) And then you look at the back and there's actually like three and a half or four servings in it. So without even thinking about it, you're eating four servings, you know, 100 grams of carbs worth of of just pretzels. Um, And it's super easy to do if you're just eating it right out of the bag. So if you put stuff on a plate and sit down at a table to eat it, just in doing that, you've made the whole experience much more mindful, And I think that any time that you can try to make eating about eating uh, and also the social aspects of eating, but if you can make eating a more pleasant food experience where you're giving attention to the food, um, it's going to benefit you rather than just like zoning out in front of the TV, zoning out in front of your phone, zoning out in front of the computer. You're going to eat more when you're doing that. There's no
0: question about it. Exactly. And it becomes less about the pleasure-inducing sensation of the food itself and more about the environment that you're eating in. The other thing is, you know, it's also helpful to be mindful about how you're eating. I, I would say probably more often than not, people eat faster than they should. And I don't think that that's necessarily something that you have to, like, completely revamp. Guilty. (laughs) <laughs> I think we're all guilty. I mean, when my eyes are bigger than my stomach and I'm eating something that's hyper palatable and <laughs> super rich or just something I'm really looking forward to even if it's a bowl of salad, like I can overeat the shit out of that. And here's the thing. It's okay to eat fast sometimes. It's not the end of the world. But what are you doing within the rest of your environment when you're eating to make sure that like your digestion and your hunger signals catch up when you're eating too fast? And that's where the element of, um, you know, eating socially with others and being present or just being present with yourself while you're eating as opposed to being distracted while you're eating can make sure that you don't become too addicted to the habit of just purely eating itself. Here's another really cool pro tip that I have found to be helpful in my personal experience is what are you doing once you're done eating? Let's say that you had an intention on eating a certain amount, like you had, you know, you wanted one plate, maybe like a second helping, but you didn't just want to sit there and start eating nonstop. But your hunger signals, you know, they're not kicking in yet. You haven't started to digest your food. You're not full. Something that you should focus on is what do you do after you're eating? There's several different options here. If you're with someone else, it's as simple as having or continuing to carry on that conversation. Um, Maybe having a glass of water after you eat while you're having that conversation Um, something else you could do with others and even by yourself is getting up from the table and you know giving yourself the cue like eating is done let's start to enjoy how I feel and I find one of the most valuable things to do is to take a walk take a walk enjoy enjoy the meal that you've just you've just had and you've just shared whether it's with yourself or with others and you know digest
1: yeah I, I sometimes I'll I'll chew a piece of gum after I eat or I'll just go brush my teeth to kind of signal to my brain like, Hey, this meal's over. And I do think that that's helpful, but slowing down eating is a challenge for me. Like I said, I've been scarfing down my food my entire life. And this goes back way to the beginning of the conversation with Giacomo or when we were talking about how like there's deep rooted family childhood stuff. Yes. But a lot of even that is habitual You know, we think of it like there's a psychological trauma going on, which there might be, there might be, but a lot of the stuff that goes all the way back to childhood are just bad habits we formed super early. Um, I remember being in like first grade and I couldn't eat my cereal without reading the box. Like I always had to be doing something else while I was eating and that has led me to read while I eat pretty much for my entire life. And that's something that I've had to unlearn how to do. And um, it's still hard, but now I'm aware of it. Whereas before it was just an automatic response, just prop my book up in front of me while I eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But again, that means we're giving our attention to the book or the cereal box and not to the food and the environment that we're in. And that always, as a kid, led me to overeat. I could eat a box of cereal for breakfast because I'd just be sitting there eating and reading and eating and reading. Um, So yeah, that's a little side tangent there. But uh, the environment in which you eat is really important. And it all kind of ties together. And it's something that you need to work on as a whole in order to start seeing reductions in your incidence of overeating and binge eating. Let's talk about stress. Because stress is an emotion, and I think stress is probably the emotion that does get in the way of us overeating frequently. Like it, it is. I do think that stress is a cause of a lot of people's overeating. Um, Stress is stress. Our bodies cannot differentiate between good stress and bad stress. It can't differentiate between the stress of getting a work promotion and the stress of having a really hard training session. Stress is stress. And when stress builds up in our body, in my opinion, we are a lot more likely to overeat. I don't know if I've ever ever mentioned this on the podcast before, but I have something that I call the trifecta of overeating. And the trifecta of overeating is any time that I personally find myself in a situation where I am too hungry, too tired, and too stressed. If those three things happen, I'm, I feel like a walking binge waiting to happen, basically. And we've covered both two of the topics already. Too hungry, there's that caloric deficit and the nutrient timing. Too tired, that's why we talked about the importance of sleep. Now we're going to talk about too stressed and I feel like this is the one that we seemingly have the least control over because life happens. Things are going to happen to you, which is why it's really important that we focus on the other two because we do have more control over our sleep and our food.
0: What? Nothing. But
1: but stress is going to happen to us one way or the other, but there are things we can do to kind of mitigate it.
0: Yeah, and I think, honestly, I can only speak for myself here. like, I still struggle with uh, managing stress because it's not going away. Who I, doesn't? I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> every,
1: every I think that's my point, is that everybody struggles with managing stress. Every single... A human on this planet, child or adult, business person, unemployed, stay-at-home mom, it doesn't matter. I think everybody struggles with managing stress because to a degree, it is out of our control. So what are the things you can control in regards to stress?
0: So one, I think it's important to accept the fact that the stress is going to be there whether you like it or not, instead of saying, why me and you know, I'm just a victim of a stressful life of my own doing or of the environments doing around me or both. So accept the fact that stress is a part of life, right? Now, what do we do about it? Like we can't, we have responsibilities, Uh, we all have to do things in order to um, live, right? And what what do we do when the stress starts to get the better of us? I think at that point, it's important to sort of take a small step back because I'm not saying to just like whitewash everything you're doing in your life and create a new open canvas. <laughs> like you want to be able to be successful at the way that you are living, right? So you take a small step back and this is where the self-care comes into play and you sort of evaluate and reevaluate the way that you're living. Okay let's face it, we all would like to think that we are hyper productivity machines, and we can be super efficient and we can be super focused, and we can just do more, and we will just inevitably be better. But the fact of the matter remains that we can only have so much focus, we can only be so efficient and we can only be so productive. So I think you take a look at your day from from sun up to sundown and you sort of assess the way that you're doing things recognize those periods of time throughout the day where being saying, I can do this, I can do this, like it ain't happening. And take those periods of the day and sort of use them to self care, to use them to self care, use them to decompress, use them to sort of practice some mindfulness and practice being being okay with yourself. Give yourself those short little breaks throughout the day. So that way your bursts of energy will be longer and harder, and you'll be able to do more and be better. And I think if you can basically work on managing your stress, and I th- I would say one of the more important uh, elements of stress management will be the end of the day. How are you winding down? How are you getting ready to prepare to rest and recover from the day, sorting out your thoughts, you know, resting your body? I think if you work on If you look at the way that your day goes, there is nobody that is grinding away from sunup to sundown. I don't care if you say it. You're not doing it. We're humans. We're not robots. We need to rest. We need to recharge. We need to recover. And we need to figure out how and when to do that.
1: So for me, uh, learning to say no is really, really important in terms of mitigating my stress. Um, We get requests literally like sunup to sundown both business and personal requests for, for favors or to write articles or like check out this product or, um, I mean, I mean, we just, we get requests all the time and having to be a little bit discriminatory in what we say yes to is really important. Otherwise, we are burning the candles at both ends and just feeling constantly wired. And like Giacomo said, you can only be so productive. And if you're tricking yourself into thinking, oh, no, I can be a productivity machine, um, it's probably not going to happen. If you actually chart how productive you're being, you will see there is a point of diminishing return where you think you're being super productive. Maybe you're sitting in front of your computer, um, but at the end of the day, like the amount of actual work being done is not that much higher than if you had spent a few hours less than that. So why not just be as productive as you can in the hours that you can, and then take a couple of hours to you know, unwind, do something for you, do something that I always tell my clients this, Find something that is literally of like zero consequence and do it because I personally can get into the habit of making my downtime be like um, self-improvement time and turning even my downtime into a chore where I feel like I need to be being productive in terms of improving myself in some way. And it's kind of funny, actually. Because the whole point of the downtime is to really unwind. But if I'm turning it into like trying to be better at, at meal prepping, or if I'm calling meal prepping my downtime, even if I enjoy it, which I do, um, it's not really downtime. I say find something that makes you happy and, and de-stresses you and literally serves no other purpose. And as we say this, I'm sitting here staring at this 16 by 20 inch paint by numbers, one of those really elaborate adult paint by numbers um, that over last fall I would say I got really into doing these paint by numbers. They require no artistic ability, but they require a lot of focus and they're quite soothing. Nothing, there's nothing like helpful in me doing a paint by number, but when I do them, I am able to like deeply unwind and de-stress, and and for everybody, this is going to be different. For some people, it could be um, knitting or crocheting or gardening or just taking a bath or anything. I mean, you name it. But the point is, it has to be something that is completely unproductive, but makes you feel really good. And I think that that's a huge difference than just going off and finding some other form of self-improvement and calling it downtime.
0: And here's the other thing, you know, maybe it's the most practical thing to do from a responsibility and success standpoint to be able to sort of take this small step back and maybe manage your stress by having a little bit of downtime for you throughout the day during these periods of time where you just cannot be productive but depending on how long you've been perpetually overly stressed out like it's it isn't the worst thing in the world to sometimes take some more time like take a week for example you know it can be uh what do they call that a staycation where you don't have the time to walk away from everything but you do have the necessity to sort of take a lot of time for you for uh, an extended period of time, you know, maybe it could be painting, um, painting a paint by numbers that takes you, you know, 20, 30 hours worth of your week, for example. And it could be one of those abnormal weeks where you're just recharging your batteries. Um, You know, maybe it could be for like someone like me, you know, I might play the practice music and play the drums for 20 to 30 hours a week. And it's unreasonable to do that for a long period of time. If you're looking to be uh, more successful at something you're doing, or obviously making sure you take care of 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 your needs and the needs of others around you. You know, just by being being the the best version of se- yourself that you can be. But sometimes, being the best version of yourself that you could be requires that you take a step back, because you might think that you're helping others, but until you take care of yourself, until you are okay and whole again you are of no use to others. And if anything, and, and this is sometimes hard to hear, but if you're not put together and you're not taking care of yourself and you're not somewhat selfish, you're going to wind up doing more harm than good for others, even with the best of intentions, when you're trying to give all of your energy to, to not, just, not just other people, but projects, work projects, personal projects, uh, life.
1: And I know that when I post things about this on Instagram about, you know, taking the time to get sleep and, and taking down time for yourself, I always get a handful of comments that are basically like, well, it must be nice. There's always a comment like that. Like, I have kids in a full-time job. It must be nice to be able to get eight hours of sleep. And first of all, I will say, uh, it is. Um, <laughs> second of all, you know, the way that uh, our lives are, didn't happen by accident. We don't just happen to have all this extra time to sleep. I mean, we don't have kids, but we do have a pretty demanding immediate family that we have to um, do things for and help out pretty much every day. And we run a business full-time that supports not just us, but also, again, uh, quite a bit of my immediate family. And Our lives are very, very busy and very, very demanding, and we also train full-time, but again, I consider that to be kind of be part of our job, but I digress. The point is, um, don't look at other people who have set their life up in an intentional way and say it must be nice. Rather, take a look at your own life and see where you're hemorrhaging out time and energy on stuff that isn't important. And look at where you're spending most of your time and realize that that is what you have prioritized. And if you're cool with that, then that's, that's great. That's wonderful. But if your priorities don't line up with what you're spending your most time and energy on, you need to reassess those things and find a way to um, make the time you're spending match your actual life priorities Um, we, we don't have children, but I'm sure if we did, we would be devoting a lot of time to those children and and certainly areas of our life would have to give, but you have to have some areas of your life that are just, um, non-negotiable. It is non-negotiable to me to get seven hours of sleep every night. I have to, I have to, or I can't do anything else. It is non-negotiable to me to keep training in my life, um, It makes me happy, it keeps me healthy, and it contributes to my job. Um, And it's non-negotiable to have some downtime for myself. And sometimes this is literally as little as a half an hour a couple of times a week. Literally. Like, I'm I'm not kidding. But if I decide to tough it out, if I decide to just, like, the days keep piling up and I keep not taking some downtime for myself... I will pay like my my productivity will tank I will start to be super stressed and I'll end up not being able to sort of defensively take some downtime for myself as a preventative measure I'm gonna have to take some downtime and probably a lot more just to recover from whatever fatigue hole I've put myself in so staying on top of it before I just completely crash and burn Is critical and here's the thing we will all crash and burn if we don't take this time to de-stress and crashing and burning can look different for everybody and for a lot of people it looks like binge eating so just something to keep in mind as you go forward let's talk about when the cravings or the urges to binge hit what are some things that you can do to help keep that from happening because if you have been having this issue for a long time it may have just developed into a habit like we've talked about like you don't even realize it but somewhere deep in the back of your mind you're kind of looking forward to that next uh um overeating episode to happen even though you don't really want it to happen but there's like a part of you that's really looking forward to it so there comes a point where you can just kind of feel it around the corner um but you don't want to do it anymore. So what what are some things that you can do to prevent it from happening when all you want in the world is to just go like rip open a bag of cookies?
0: So I think the first thing to do here is to assess when it's happening and when it started to happen because like Danny said, you know, there there could be a specific trigger that started the the urge to binge. But sometimes that initial trigger can be long gone and at that at some point it's just become a habit. So let's just take for example, let's just say, oh I don't know, let's just say it's a, a stressed out call from a friend and it generally comes at the same time of the day every day. Right after that phone call, the very first thing that you do is you are triggered and you engage in binging, or or at least you feel the urge very strongly. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And you never really make this connection. Now, all of a sudden, let's just say your friend is traveling and they're unreachable, and so they, they don't call you and you don't call them. There's no way to connect. That same time of the day comes, and guess what? Like, your body is used to binging, and at this point, it's just become a habit. So that week or two when your friend is traveling, you're still binging. At this point, it's become a habit and it has nothing to do with what triggered it. So I think it's important to recognize these things and know like, hey, it's, it's around the corner. One, why did it happen? Two, why is it continuing to happen? Three, become aware of the why and the habit itself. And once you become aware of it, you can sort of start to figure out what else to do instead of uh, acting on the urge to binge. Okay,
1: but I'm saying, I agree with you. But what do you do when those feelings arise to keep yourself from actually giving
0: in? Okay, so now that you know that it's around the corner, you're aware of it, what do you do? And I think the simple answer is find something to do that is not food focused.
1: Distract, distract, distract. I think it is the most important thing you can do. And it's kind of the most obvious thing you can do. But just because it's obvious doesn't mean I'm not going to say it. Distract yourself. When those binges are high, find something else to do. Again, the paint by number is a great example because it busies your hands and your mind. Um, Knitting, gardening, take a bath, paint your nails. Find something that you can do to distract yourself from eating. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be real uncomfortable, but... Every time you do this and every time you succeed, it's going to be a little bit less uncomfortable and a little bit less uncomfortable. Those urges are going to be less strong and less strong. Um, It's really, really important. I, I don't often tell people to like white knuckle their way through something, like grit your teeth and just do it. It's not something that I usually say to people. This is an instance where I'm going to say, When those urges come, the binge urges, I'm not talking about an urge to eat a real meal. Once you've, you've gotten all these other things we've talked about in check, the, the caloric deficit, the sleep, the stress is being managed as best it can be. You're eating in good environments. Once all of those are in check, if you're still getting those binging urges, this is when it's time to say self, we're not giving in this time. We're not going to, I'm doing everything right. And now this is just a habit. This is just some lower level part of my brain that just wants to be lit up with dopamine and serotonin, uh, much like a drug addict, because food does have a drug-like effect on the brain. uh, And we need to say, I'm not doing it this time. So finding something else to distract yourself from the food. And if you find yourself uh, walking back to the kitchen and opening up the cabinets and just looking in them, if you're seeing yourself do this over and over again, and I think Anybody who has struggled with binge eating knows that this happens. This does happen. Sounds silly, but it happens a lot. Get out of the house. Get out of the house. Um, When I was going through the worst of my recovering from my eating disorder, I would walk sometimes for hours and not not for over exercise. This wasn't um, like a different type of an eating disorder. It was just to get away from the food for a while You know, I'd assess, am I truly hungry right now? Um, But you can kind of tell the difference between being truly hungry and an urge to binge. They feel different. So once I made sure all my basic needs were being met, if those binge urges were still there, I would just leave the house and I would just walk for half an hour, sometimes longer. And just physically removing the food from my presence eliminated the opportunity for me to start overeating. And for me, that was very, very helpful. And usually by the time the worst of the craving had passed, um, you know, I could go home and then it was fine. And then, then it was time for my next real meal anyway. Um, so differentiating between just hungry and an actual urge to binge is important. And then assessing that as it happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, play music, clean, write in a journal, do something and do it away from where you normally eat. And I think this is where it's important to sort of create boundaries. An env- boundaries, exactly. Like for me, the boundary is the table. If I'm eating in the living room once in a while as a treat, like I'll do that. But for the most part, sit down at the table. That's where you eat. Create an environment outside of your kitchen that is completely not focused on food whatsoever. And these, these—I'm not saying it's—it's going to be perfect, but you're more likely than not to create these boundaries and honor them. Now, here's the thing: sometimes you won't be able to honor them, and sometimes these binges aren't going to come on their own. They're going to come when it's time to sit down to eat, whether it's before you eat, while you're supposed to be eating, um, or even after you're supposed to be done eating. And I think that you know, if you continue to build these hat, these um, hobbies, habits. Um, Interest, whatever they are that are outside of, um, that there have nothing to do with food whatsoever, you're going to have an arsenal of things to do that take you away from the act of overeating.
1: I think, yeah, building a tool belt and that's how I, I thought of it when I was going through it. I needed all these tools in my tool belt, um, in order to tackle my own, um, at that point it was just an eating disorder. It wasn't just, I occasionally binged, it was an actual eating disorder, Um, Another thing that I would do is if I was feeling these urges or I would tell somebody, um, because again, like I said earlier, these behaviors, they thrive in secret. They grow in shame. Like you need to be able to have somebody in your life that you can say, hey, I am like really struggling to not eat everything in the kitchen right now. Whether that's your spouse or your sister or your mother or a friend that you call or and internet. if you have nobody, there are full communities of people online that are trying to overcome these things as well. Find one and be active in it and, you know, ask for help when you need it and also help others when they need it. So, um, yeah, this isn't easy and you're not always going to win this little battle. But every time you do win, it's going to get easier and easier and easier. And again, this is assuming that all of those other things we already talked about are in check. Um,
0: You know, the the other thing when it comes to community is be careful because sometimes a community can be the wrong type of community to be involved in. You know, and you can fall into a cycle of food shaming or body shaming or just, you know, they're engaging in unhealthy behaviors and you don't even realize that you're in it until you're in it. Like, I mean, people feed off of other people. So sometimes you might be a part of the wrong community and you might not know it until it's too late. So it's all a matter of surrounding yourself basically with the right environment, the right community and the right people to get what you want and need for yourself and to be able to give properly too.
1: the very last thing that I want to touch upon. And maybe I should have done this in the beginning is that people occasionally overeat and that's okay. It is Okay. Sometimes we're so hung up on being perfect that we think anytime we overeat, we screwed up or we blew it or something along those lines. But the fact of the matter is people that have completely healthy, 100% healthy relationships to food physically and mentally occasionally overeat. That is part of being a normal eater. Um normal eaters aren't people who never overeat and never undereat. Occasionally you're going to undereat, occasionally you're going to overeat and that is perfectly okay. And if you're holding yourself to the standard of say hitting your macros every single day for the rest of your life forever, you're going to fail because that's not realistic at all. I don't know anybody that does that. Not anybody. Um the top-level athletes I know, the top-level physique athletes I know, where your body is literally the entire sport, occasionally overeat. Um, children who have a, you know babies that have normal... We haven't, we haven't had a chance to screw up their relationship with food yet. They still occasionally overeat or occasionally undereat. It's just important to remember that that is normal and acceptable and good even.
0: Yeah, just like my friend Nadej likes to say, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, as uh, you know, as physique-minded uh, individuals, it's uh, it's there are periods of time where it's important to take control and uh, and to do things in a controlled manner. But I, I don't know about others, but I know about myself, and I'm sort of a control freak. And that's good and that's bad. And sometimes it's important to release that control and to just be.
1: Okay, so we have a question from a friend of mine in Texas. I'll leave her name out. Okay, I'm not sure if you ever went over the plant-based way of eating and your thoughts regarding optimal performance. I think you touched on it when you interviewed Anastasia. And I've heard your opinions on the whole food plant-based lifestyle, but I'm wondering if there's a deeper science somewhere that I am missing. Multiple circumstances led us to being plant-based, and they mean as opposed to just vegan and eating anything that's vegan. Multiple circumstances have led us to being plant-based over the last four months, and our athletic performance has gotten insanely better. Now, we definitely have different goals, so I wonder if that's it. My husband is an endurance athlete and I need a lot of energy to instruct fitness classes, but I'm wondering if I could ever compete in physique sports being plant based versus subbing in meat alternatives. So there are definitely athletes who compete as whole food plant based. And I just want to clarify the question is about being whole food plant based, which means no mock meats, no protein powders, no sugars, no oils, um I mean people take it to different levels but in general it just means literally what it sounds like whole food plants. Um and there are bodybuilding competitors who compete and are whole food plant based but what I have found is that the people who are successful in doing this are almost always larger men or people with very high metabolisms. The faster your metabolism is, it seems like the more whole foods you can incorporate into a competition prep because protein requirements are protein requirements, right? And, you know, there's a range that you can stay in in terms of hitting those protein goals. But essentially, everybody needs a certain amount of protein, more or less based on their lean body mass. But if you have a really fast metabolism, then you're able to eat a lot more food, which means you're able to get a lot more protein from that food. But if you are, I'll use myself as an example, if you're a female like myself who typically ends her competition preps around 1,300 calories, which is abysmal, it's low, um, and I still need to get 130 grams of protein from that, there's no way that I personally could do that with whole food plants. I need to supplement with some sort of more dense type of protein, whether it's tofu, tempeh, seitan, mock meat, protein powder, any number of those things is going to allow me to hit 130 grams of protein on 1300 calories at the end of a prep. Um, Whereas you could take somebody who's exactly like me, looks like me built like me, but has a super fast metabolism, they might end their competition prep on like 1800 calories Um, they're going to be able to eat a lot more whole foods to hit that same protein goal. So hopefully that kind of makes sense. I do think that um, for endurance sports, there's a lot more success with whole food plant-based. And and for strength sports, there's a lot of success with whole food plant-based. It's when you get to the part of cutting and getting really shredded that's where it becomes a million times harder. Um, but I, I don't, I have no issue whatsoever with people who can consume a whole food plant-based diet, not at all. Um, I think that when it comes to very specific bodybuilding goals, it, it is a lot harder, but I think for the general population, if you're doing it right, if you're doing it right, it's, I think it's one of the healthiest ways you can live
0: yeah exactly. You know when it comes to here 's why I think it's important to promote a whole food plant based diet and lifestyle it 's because on the whole for and and it should be an agenda because it does help people on the whole on a very broad spectrum um, however, just like anything else, when it comes to doing something that requires increased specificity like competing in a strength or physique based sport, you know, when we do these things, we need to basically look at all sorts of different camps and ways of doing things and ways of not just training, but also eating and sort of, you know, just find, find what we need to take from each one and do the best that we can. As far as whole food plant-based dieting, I believe strongly that this should be the foundation of everything when it, even when it comes to being a competitive strength or physique-based athlete, however, you know these guidelines that we create for for ourselves, um, while including the majority of foods in our like you know 50, 75 percent or more, um, being coming from whole foods, we also have to be practical and know what our needs are. Yes, we need a certain amount of protein. Yes, sometimes we will be in a steep caloric deficit. And and uh, no, that doesn't mean that we can only stick to our guidelines that we would otherwise um, most of the time. So yeah, I guess what I'm saying is in short, I understand the agenda and the need to promote a whole food plant-based diet. And I understand the parameters that are set and why we should be sticking to those as a foundation. But like anything else, there are um, there are different things that we should borrow from different camps Um, And styles and and ways of eating. And we need to ultimately find out what works for us.
1: And I think there might be a misconception about the talk when we chatted with Anastasia. I don't think we were knocking whole food plant-based. I think we were probably knocking high-carb, low-fat. And I would probably continue to knock that forever, honestly. I think that just the term high-carb, low-fat is so misleading. Because again, if you're eating 5,000 calories, well then 10% fat still comes out to be about 50 grams of fat a day. Um, But if you're eating 1500 calories, then you're looking at like 15 grams of fat a day. And if you're going to do that for an extended period of time, your hormones are going to suffer. So low fat diets are can be great for people that have heart disease and are combating heart disease. And I think that that, you know, you're in a diseased state at that point. That is out of my lane. That is not something that I feel comfortable suggesting for people how to eat. But just based on my limited research, low fat makes sense then. Um, for the general population and the general athlete, I think high carb, low fat is, it's stupid. I mean, every, I think it's stupid. Everybody should try stuff out for themselves. And see what they like. But once you start limiting, when someone says an avocado is bad for you, I'm out. Peace out. Like I'm out of this conversation. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, and then high carb, low fat leaves out the question of protein whatsoever. And as a strength athlete, I think that protein is important. So is it as important as muscle and fitness magazine would have you believe? No, of course it's not. But It is still important, and in a high-carb, low-fat diet, again, 1,500 calories, you're probably eating very little protein. 5,000 calories, you're probably eating a perfectly fine amount of protein. So it really depends on the individual person and their metabolism. But, yeah, that conversation, I don't remember it exactly because it was, like, over a year ago at this point, but I'm pretty certain that we were specifically talking about high carb low fat and specifically 80 10 10 which is like the root of all evil in my opinion so All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. If you have any questions or just want to contribute to the conversation, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Vegan Proteins and at Muscles by Brussels. And please come join our Facebook community. That's a group called Muscles by Brussels Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And we'll talk to you in two weeks.